you'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 3, I'd like to begin reading in verse 16 and read through verse uh, 21. John chapter 3 beginning in verse 16, I'd like to read all the way through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There's a lot of things that take place at the Christmas season that stir our emotions and bring to our minds wonderful memories. Uh, There's the lights of Christmas, the the songs of Christmas, the decorations of Christmas. But for many of us, included in all of that would be the movies of Christmas. Uh, Maybe it's the animated classics that some of us grew up with, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a Charlie Brown Christmas and uh, the classics of that genre. Or for others, maybe it's the more contemporary movies like uh, Elf or any other number of, uh, of movies. Uh, you go back to, um, to Jimmy Stewart's uh, wonderful movie uh, and others like that. A Wonderful Life. Slipped my mind for a moment. Jimmy Stewart's A Wonderful Life. Yeah, of all the movie classics, I think the one that that I still love the most is A Christmas Carol. Uh, We better know it as as Scrooge. And there's been all kinds of versions of A Christmas Carol that have been filmed over the years and presented over the years, but I think I still like the original the best. Bernard Owen played Scrooge, and he captured, I think, the essence of the character described by Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol. Scrooge is presented in the novel as a cold-hearted miser who hates Christmas. And the more we learn about him in the story, the more we despise him. Dickens described Scrooge this way. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gout, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and his speech was shrewd with a grating tone. If you've ever seen A Christmas Carol, Bernard Owen captures that image perfectly. 
We despise Scrooge and everyone like him, but the reality is all of us are Scrooge or have been. Have you noticed in, in virtually all of the, the classical Christmas movies, there's a Scrooge-like figure. Whether it's the, the Grinch or, if, or Elf's father or, or virtually any of the movies, there's a Grinch, or not a Grinch-like, but there's a Scrooge-like figure. Scrooge is every man apart from Christ. We look at Scrooge and we think, well, I, I'm not like Scrooge. I'm not a miser like Scrooge. I'm not hateful like Scrooge. But what we're doing is we're comparing ourselves to Scrooge. Instead of comparing ourselves to God. In, in a very real sense, when we compare ourselves to God, Scrooge is a better man than any man or woman in here before he met or she met Christ. The Bible describes a person outside of Christ in terms much harsher than the way that Dickens describes Scrooge. And so when we read the words, for God so loved the world, they come from the most well-known verse of the Bible. It's the most beloved phrase in the Bible. Even people that aren't raised in the Bible belt and who have very seldom, if ever, have darkened the doors of a church are familiar with that line of Scripture. They may not be able to identify it. They may not be able to find it. For God so loved the world. The world is Scrooge-like when you look at the way that the world is described in the New Testament. The world is described in the, in the New Testament as humanity under the dominion of Satan and living in opposition to God. That sounds very Scrooge-like, doesn't it? Humanity living, in, living under the dominion of Satan and living in opposition to God. That's who every human being is by birth and by choice. We're sinners by birth and we're sinners by choice. So when, when he says, for God so loved the world, he's making a stunning statement. In chapter 1, it describes how Jesus created the world. He was in the world, and the world didn't recognize him because mankind was shrouded in moral and spiritual darkness, separate from God. And when it says God loves the world, he's saying that God loves humanity. Now, he loves his children in a peculiar and special way, but none of us have been born children of God. We've all been born in opposition to God. We've all been born under the dominion of Satan, and we live at least a portion of our lives in opposition to God. There's something Scrooge-like about every human being. 
And maybe that's why a Scrooge-like figure appears in Christmas movies over and over and over again. And what you find is that just like in the story of Scrooge, in these Scrooge-like movies, there, there seems to be a, a magnificent and, and climactic transformation in the Scrooge-like figure. It resonates with, with the truth of the Bible. That God can change people. God can transform people. In fact, in the very passage that I just read, if we stepped back and looked at the bigger, the bigger context, we would see that it follows a discussion between Jesus and a rabbi by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a very laudatory man in many ways. He's an exceptional teacher, a gifted scholar, a member of, of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the, the highest court among the Jewish people. And he has an interest in Jesus, a, a real interest, a sincere interest, a heartfelt interest in Jesus. And yet inside Nicodemus, something's not right. His heart is dark rather than light. In fact, the end of the passage that we read just a moment ago, in verses 16 through uh, 21, he talks about this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that, the, that his deeds will be exposed. That's Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness and John wants us to understand he comes under the cover of darkness because his soul is in darkness as good a man as he is. At the very core of his being, he's Scrooge-like. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. In fact, he says it four times. You must be born again. You must be born of water and the spirit. You must be born again. Don't be surprised that I say to you, you must be born again. There has to be a dramatic and, and cataclysmic change in who you are, the very core of your being. You must be transformed by the power of God and changed into a new person. That's what happened to Scrooge. And for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that transformation has happened to us by the grace of God and the power of God. What's stunning in these opening words is that God loved the world, not when we were transformed, but before we were transformed. The prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the domain of darkness, the prince of this world is none other than Satan himself. And every human being outside of Christ lives in that domain, lives in that dominion, lives in that kingdom. And there's something wrong at their core. That's who we were, that's where we were. And God loved us. He loved the world. John has a great interest in the word love. He uses two different words that are translated by the English word love, but the important point is this. He uses those two words more than anybody else in the New Testament, any other New Testament author. 
The particular word that he uses here, the book that uses it second most, and then after that there's a great distance, is the little book of 1 John, also written by the author of this book. John the Apostle wrote the gospel. John the Apostle wrote the little book of 1 John. The particular word used right here is used 36 times in this gospel, 31 times in the little book of 1 John. No wonder that the apostle John was called the apostle of love. Because he wanted to communicate that God in his essence is love. In fact, he says it on two different occasions. God is love. Now, God is more than love, but he's not less than love. If you turn from John 3.16 to 1 John 3.16, let me read you the verse there. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Stunning, we don't even know what love is until we see what genuine love is in the sacrificial death of Jesus. And then John says, that love, that sacrificial love where Jesus laid down his life for worldly people, Scrooge-like people, fallen people, sinful people, we need to be willing to lay down our lives. Now, we can't do it in a salvific way, obviously. Only, there's only one Savior. But he wants us to love people. In the very next chapter in the little book of 1 John, John puts it this way, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. There's one evidence that a person is born again, that a person is a Christian, is that they have a loving disposition. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. No wonder that when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he said this to them, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The new birth transforms us from who we were into who God intends to make us. Matthew doesn't want us to, to escape what many of us might try to escape. That is with an asterisk or a, a, a parenthetical comment. Well, of, I love the brethren. I love my church. I love the people in my, in my church. But Matthew, quoting from Jesus, reminds us when Jesus said, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. For God so loved the world, God isn't telling us to do anything that he hasn't already done when he says love your enemies because we were God's enemies. Before we met Christ, we were enemies of God. We were living under the domain of darkness. We were living in opposition to the Son of God. And he says, Jesus, I want you to do what I've done. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. There may be no, no passage in the Bible that exemplifies the virtues of love any more than 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
We know it so well because we've heard it read so many times at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. Is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Then if you go down to the final verse, but now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I was meditating on that passage this week and I was thinking about the fact that Christmas is a reminder that God loves us. He loves us just as we are and he loves us enough to say you don't have to remain there. You can become a new person. You can be adopted into my family. And then I made my way through these passages and I, and I, and I thought about them because I often have asterisks and parentheses, but Jesus said, love your enemies. Love those who don't like you. Love those who mistreat you. Love those who betray you. Love those who let you down. Love your enemies. And then to make your way to 1 Corinthians 13, and I, and I read it, and it's so beautiful and poetic. In many ways, it's heartwarming. And then I, I did something that I've heard other people do. I, I replaced the word love with the word God. God is patient. God is kind. God is not jealous. God does not brag. And God is not arrogant. God does not act unbecomingly. God does not seek his own. God is not provoked. God does not take into account a wrong suffer. God does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but God rejoices in the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, obviously we know that the love of God doesn't eradicate the righteous judgment of God, the wrath of God. The fact that mankind's rejection of God is their choice for eternal damnation. But, but in a very real sense, these phrases do encapsulate something of God's character, every, every one of them. Something of his disposition. Now obviously, again, there's still judgment. John talks about judgment in, in the very passage that we, that we read just a moment ago in John 3, 16 through 21. There is a sense in which the gospel is like a two-sided coin and on one side of the gospel is, is God's gospel, an offer of forgiveness and on the other side is God's judgment and God's wrath. But love is godlike, and Christmas is a reminder and these movies are a reminder that love makes a big difference. Love changes things. As I prayed over 1 Corinthians 13 and thought about it, the most disturbing thought came to my mind, and that is, why don't you put your name in there? You put God's name in there. God wants you to be like him. Why don't you put your name in there? 
I wanted to say that comes from, came from the devil, and so I wanted to rebuke the thought because I knew what it would sound like. I knew what it would look like. I knew what it would reveal about me. Bill is patient. Bill is kind. Bill is not jealous. Bill does not brag. Bill is not arrogant. Bill does not act unbecomingly. Bill does not seek his own. Bill is not provoked. Bill does not take into account a wrong suffered. Bill does not rejoice in righteousness, but Bill rejoices in the truth. Bill bears all things. Bill believes all things. Bill hopes all things. Bill endures all things. I sat in my chair next to my window in my study and I was appropriately humiliated. I think if I were to ask my wife, she was given a truth serum, she would say some of those things are genuinely true about him. And she would have to admit what she has seen and what I've experienced in my own actions that many of those things may be partially true about me, but not fully true. And some of them may not be true at all. For God so loved the world. Mankind under the dominion of Satan, living in opposition to God. I was appropriately rebuked by the passage, humiliated, embarrassed, although it's just me and God in the room, and realized that's what Christmas in part is about, extolling the virtue of love, not just any love, not just sentimentality, not just Hallmark movie love, but God-like love. That Christmas is a reminder of the love of God, and in many ways, not God's love just for his people, but God's love for those whom he created. He came to his own and his own received him not. Now you can push everything too far. You can push everything over the edge. You can, you can push it to where it's absurd and, and it doesn't make sense. It's not, not biblically balanced. But before we do that, let's just allow it to, let's just allow it to make an impression on our soul. For just a moment, let's be like Plato and, and, and God's love like a hand. So we put down into that Plato. And then when we pull it out, we see an impression. Let's allow it to sink in for just a moment. For God so loved the world. And then let's think of those qualities which God exemplifies so perfectly in 1 Corinthians 13. There's, not, there's none of them if appropriately understood and, and balanced within his great character of love and holiness and, and justice and grace and that, that don't appropriately describe who he is. And then let's stand back and, and realize love is a reminder to us. Christmas is a reminder to us 
of what God wants us to be like. Not just to one another, uh, but to those around us, to those we work with, to those we live next door to. The love of God. Uh, if you got a chance to be here on the pre last few Sunday nights, we just had the most marvelous uh, sermons. I say that because I didn't preach any of them. The most marvelous sermons on Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And, and the one on chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, I was reminded as I believe Adam was preaching to us, Adam Howe, and, and the Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought gifts worthy of a king. As he's preaching, there starts running through my mind the fact that I'm very, very intentional about making sure that for those I love, I get the gift they really want within reason within reason so I, I, I want my children I want their spouses if they're married and I want my grandchildren to get their best gift from me and their parents are usually glad to, to do that because that's usually the most expensive gift their child wants they're, they're very glad to do that and, and then as Adam's speaking and I'm thinking about gifts and I'm thinking about the magi and the thought came to me, what, what will I give the king? What, what gift will I give the king? It, it came back to my mind as I'm sitting in my chair this week in my study by the window thinking about this passage. What gift will I give the king? Jesus, the king, has said, love your enemies. Jesus, the king, said through the apostle Paul that love is patient, kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, there are consequences, isn't there, to sin? We wouldn't deny that, but that's our asterisk that we put up rather quickly, the parentheses that we initially will extol. But just to let it sink in for a moment, does not take into account a wrong suffered. We take into account wrongs that we have suffered. And usually we take them in to such a degree that we allow them to fester and they begin to ooze with pus and infection. But we've got a reason. They betrayed us. They hurt us. They undercut us. They stabbed us in the back. They did us wrong. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love your enemies. For God so loved the world. What would be a better gift than to release a wrong? To let someone off the hook. To love like God loves. Now we can put all kinds of caveats and asterisks by it. We usually do. And there's some that are more reasonable than others. 
That would be a, a magnificent gift to give because it really would cost us something. Uh, the gifts I give to my grandchildren and my children, they're, 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 they're gifts that I'm able to provide within reason until the day that one of them comes and says, Papa, I'd like a car, and I'd say, go to your dad. You know, within reason, I can do it, but this is something that goes beyond reason. It's not reasonable. It's not intuitive. It doesn't even seem human to do it. It's not human. It's godlike. Release someone. Don't hold it against them. You might even do something like this. You might even write their name on a sheet of paper. Get down on your knees beside the chair where you have your devotions. Lay the piece of paper on the chair. Lord, I release them. There's all kinds of things we could say that would try to put that into a parenthesis or something, but just try it. Say, I'm not a magi, I'm not a wise man, I'm, I'm not a king, whoever those, whoever those men were, probably Persian astrologers, pagans, who brought the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but what about just being reminded God loved me when I didn't love him. God sought me when I didn't seek him. God drew me when I was running from him. He loved me when I was in the world, of the world, worldly. I want to say to you this morning that the Christmas is a reminder of the love of God. First, his love toward us. God loves you. If you are his child, he loves you in a peculiar and particular way. He saved you. He's adopted you. He listens to your prayers. He never leaves you or forsakes you. He sent the spirit. His spirit dwells inside you. He loves you. Your circumstances might say God doesn't know you. God doesn't love you. God is against you. But the Bible says God loves you. The Bible is more true and is to be believed over your circumstances. Your circumstances will lie to you. I'm not negating difficult circumstances. I'm not negating hardships. I'm not negating all of those things. They're real. They're there. But they are a liar if they are trying to convince you that God doesn't love you. He loves you. You should cherish that thought. Allow it to sink in. You know what? You might not know God, but God loves you too. He created you. He sustains you. He causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, and he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's a good God. That's a gracious God. That's a God that's giving you an, a, an, this breath and the next breath and the next breath and the next breath. 
that you could return and, and give your life to him and love him and serve him and know him as your heavenly father. That's, that's grace. And that's a reminder that Christmas changes things. I like, I like Scrooge, the Christmas carol, because it reminds me of who I was and the transformation that God made and the work that God's continuing to do. All of us were like Scrooge. Those of us who have been saved are no longer Scrooge. We're in the process of becoming everything that God wants us to be. Christmas is a reminder of grace and it's a reminder of love. And if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, you ought to take some time over the next many days leading up to Christmas to just find a chair in a quiet place, in a quiet room. And you might have to do it after you put all the kids to bed and your husband's downstairs watching football or your wife's in the, in the kitchen baking and you just find a, a place to sit quietly. Think about the fact Christmas reminds me that God loves me, that I've experienced his grace and that God has changed me and that I want to give him a gift. I'm going to give the gift of forgiveness just like the forgiveness I've experienced. It may also be that you are here today and you don't know Jesus. And you, you maybe are a little bit troubled by, by the fact that I would compare you to Scrooge. First, just remember I compared myself to Scrooge. Second, if you turn to some places in the Bible, Scrooge is a pretty good looking guy compared to the way that the Bible describes people that don't know Jesus. Spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, spiritually condemned in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. But Christmas says to you, there is hope in Jesus Christ. We're going to have a time of invitation. It may very well be that you would like to talk to someone about your spiritual life. If you come forward, we'll introduce you to someone that will talk to you privately. I assure you, we won't manipulate you or coerce you into a decision that you need to make about what you will do with Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe you're here and you're thinking, I think I'd like to join the church. I'd like to become a part of the church. And let me assure you, what you see right now is not all that there is. We've got a lot of foibles. We've got a lot of, we, got, we, we are a church filled with sinners. It won't take you long to figure out you're led by one. And we would still love for you to join us, be a sinner with us, being transformed by the grace of God. And so if you would come, we'll introduce you to someone that can, that can talk with you about church membership. Or maybe as we stand and, and I think Caleb's gonna be leading us, we'll all be joining Caleb and we'll be, we'll be singing together. If God in his grace brings a name to your mind, Give God a gift. Give God a gift where you release that, that person. I'm not saying they're not consequences to sin. I'm just saying that bitterness and resentment are like a wound that oozes pus and infection. And it will turn you more into 
Scrooge than you would ever believe. Find that chair it's where you do read your Bible, write the name down, write the offense down, set it on the chair, pray a prayer to God, rip it up and throw it away, and then let God deal with them. Let God handle them. God can deal with them. God can take care of them. God will take care of them. And you won't have to do it. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and Caleb's going to come. We're all going to sing and have a baptism that we're going to enjoy in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you very, very much that John 3.16 is in the Bible and that in that term world, all of us at one time or presently now exist. So Father, I pray in Jesus' name that your spirit would take your words, use it in our lives for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.